Welcome to Stacey on the Right, the podcast. It's so exciting to be with you this good day. And I want to tell you something really quickly. We have a new sponsor on the program. It's Thrivent Financial. They're offering a financial professional opportunities event. Um, if you're interested in a career with meaning and purpose, you can have that as a Thrivent Financial Advisor. You can combine your values, drive, and skill to create a rewarding career helping others to reach their financial goals. At Thrivent, you'll have the support of a Fortune 500 company backed by a 100-year legacy. To explore what it means to do work that matters, email david.sample at thrivent.com or visit thrivent.com careers. All right. You know what? I always love it when we have educators and those who work with the children in our communities on the podcast, and today is no different. We have Angie Franklin, principal of Mabel Brasher Montessori in Alexandria, Louisiana. And she's joining us today to talk about school culture in the age of COVID and all of those great things. Angie, thank you for coming on today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So we, um, we're, we're looking at a really unique time in American history and culture and even parenting and education right now coming out of the pandemic and also because of the sense of disillusionment that a lot of parents have had with the, the knowledge that they've gained sitting next to their children and getting an understanding of what their children's education really is after kind of being disconnected and maybe even a little diluted um, by their idea of what education was. And so how can you tell us how the, the, the school, the culture of school, how is it changing in the wake of COVID? You know, the change that's vastly different from this year versus last year is just the participation that parents have had to do in stepping in and being a part of their students' education. You know, most schools across the nation went virtual, and so the parents had to step up and really participate in, in the scheduling part, making sure their students paid attention, participated in the classes, but then also requiring their students to be more a part of the whole education system that was housed for them. It was vastly different than what we typically do in a classroom where you have a teacher who could teach lessons right there and interact with the students. The parents had to step in and be that person that would help answer those questions or probe their students to kind of interact and and be more participating in, in what was going on. So it was vastly different from what most of the parents have done in the past. I believe that the parents definitely saw a new side of education. They saw a new side of what teachers do on a daily basis for their students. And I feel like they probably appreciated those educators just a little more when they realized how much harder it is to educate your student if you have not done that before in the past. Yes. So there, there is a, a recognition of the knowledge that there's a lot more to educating kids than maybe what was thought before. Um, there's also a, a bit of disillusionment that's going on with children actually being next to the parent. I think, And I'm speaking of the stories that we've seen in, uh, in public schools where the children have been um, getting parts of education that aren't exactly a part of reading, writing, math, uh, you know, history. Uh, civics. And so parents are looking for alternative options with their children's education. And I think your school presents something of of one of those options that parents are looking for, because yours is called Mabel Brasher Montessori. So what type of educational option is the Montessori education and, and what grade levels does your school serve? 
So our school is a Montessori education system. We are a public elementary school here in Alexandria, Louisiana, but we offer a curriculum labeled as Montessori. And Montessori is a hands-on approach to educating our students based on their individual needs, where we focus on their strengths and their weaknesses, and we teach solely to the individual student. We no longer teach the whole class in those group settings, but we focus on the individual child one to two students at a time, and we present those lessons in those hands-on format that really allow the students to dive deep into looking at the different pieces of education and how they can touch and feel and use a manipulative to help them, say, learn things like addition or subtraction. Same thing if you're looking at culture and geography. We give them a hand map that they can hold and feel and manipulate. And that's been one of the key things that parents have loved that has been different because it no longer focuses on everyone. It focuses on just their individual child because we know that children learn differently. If you have a class of 20 to 25 students, each child has a different learning format. And what Montessori offers is that ability to hit those learning formats on a variety of levels at a variety of times with a variety of manipulatives that the students can use. And the students truly thrive because we can kind of push them forward or remediate them where they need those assistance. And it's been, a, it's been a wonderful tool that the parents have been able to pull from their students and help their students really achieve a little bit more because we focus on just the child. So that's wonderful, um, and it's a great explanation of how people can uh, kind of understand the difference with Montessori, Montessori education and other options. Uh, so turning back to what parents can do, um, looking at their involvement with their child's education, and especially in light of the digital atmosphere right now where um, a lot of what we're doing is digital and now that has actually crept into our children's lives where they're doing a lot digitally as well. And then there's the media that impacts that because the media seems to be a part of everything that's digital. Uh, how can parents become more involved with their child's education in light of those new factors? You know, there's several factors that they can use that have been very beneficial to our students, you know, working on and or finding those educational websites that can push their students a little further in, in different skills. One of the things that we've used a lot this year that is, was very successful was some of those virtual or digital field trips that they could be a part of with their student, um, whether they're sitting watching different things that are involved with the zoo, working with the zoo, or even, you know, different museums that offered wonderful avenues for the parents to sit and, and explore art with their children, describe art. Um, and then the last one that we used quite a bit is we had several children's authors that would do live readings of stories. And our parents truly loved being able to sit with their children, read the stories with them, introduce them to the author, and just have that connection, which I think, you know, the parents have really enjoyed, although we've, you know, dealt with this whole new experience with COVID, it's brought them together a little closer with their children because we have those opportunities that we probably didn't really access prior to this year of COVID. So that is uh, that is what parents can do. And I think there's always room for us to say, let's go a little deeper with our kids on our, their education, um, which sometimes that, that might be because we're so involved, you know, at the day to day, everything is on a schedule. It happens as a routine. And so you get used to doing 
you know, whatever it is that you're doing with your kids. And so introducing something new, sometimes it can be exciting, it can be terrifying, uh, or it, it can feel overwhelming. But there is a way to incrementally add in and just do a little at a time and, and you know, to, to supplement what's going on, which actually is kind of like what the future of education looks like. It, in my opinion, it's, it's more parent involvement, not less. What do you think it is, Angie? It, what is the future of education right now coming out of COVID? I definitely agree with your statement that the, you know the involvement of parents are, are are going to be huge in the future. You know we don't know what the future holds. So being that active parent participating in our children's um, education, whether it be digital or face to face, is going to be huge. Um, I believe what we've learned in this past year working together with our parents, I feel that parents have realized that the more they assist with their children in learning at home the more the students are getting out of their learning. So moving forward, you know, whatever happens, I do believe that parents are going to have to continue to step up and, and kind of show their students what what is important, you know, in that time that we spend together. I do feel like, you know, technology and the media is going to continue to play a huge role in what we have to offer in education. Um, you can see all of the education vendors now turning everything to digital. And so I feel that they feel that the wave is, is continuing with these digital pieces. So definitely having the parents continue to step up and encourage. And I believe that's also something the educational systems have to continue working with, training our parents, because it's new to them. And so if we can continue on the educational side to teach not only our students but our parents, from us all working together with the education system, we'll continue to move our students further uh, because I do feel like that's going to be huge as we continue the next school year. So that is the the, the big hurdle. Um, so speaking about the next school year, it's the summer, right? We're, we're all either in the summer or beginning it. And some children did not get a full of education last year, if they were in a public school that wasn't open, or maybe it was virtual for part of the year, they didn't get the full school year experience. Um, how can parents kind of pick up that gap? If there was, if there were, let's say, two or three things that you would say this summer, do these three things with your children. Um, what what would you say those are? I would say my number one thing would definitely be to reach out to your local libraries. Uh, most libraries have some fantastic summer opportunities for students. We know the big push is reading in libraries, which is huge for our students to continue growing and reading. And our libraries have some fantastic books that the students can check out to really, you know, dive deep into the different interest levels. And it it causes a bond between the parent and the student as they read books. So those are huge. Um, A second option would be to definitely, like, reach out, you know, as you can in the community if there's different events as you continue to grow the whole child, whether you're visiting local museums, local zoos, local activities to kind of broaden their experiences, I feel like the more opportunities and experiences we can offer to our children is going to help grow them as well. But then to definitely reach out to your even your local school system. There may be some summer programs that have been set up that are allowing students to come in to kind of gain some of those hours that they missed. Um, And if they're not, then what are some of the digital education systems that you can kind of, tutoring programs you can put your students in to kind of keep them motivated through the summer? Because we know we have that summer gap, and we want to try to ensure that our students are maintaining 
throughout the summer so that they're ready when school does begin the following fall. Excellent. And those are all reasonable options. I know when our kids were smaller, um, up until they were independently reading on their own, we did the summer reading program at the St. Louis County Library System, and it was fantastic. There were so many new friends we made who would, you know, you see them two or three times a week at each of the, 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 uh, the events. And then they had this cute little, it was like a bubble chart that they could fill in the bubbles with crayons for every 20 minute block of reading that they would complete. And then they would get an ice cream cone from Sonic or a small French fry from Sonic or a mini pizza from Pizza Hut. And we did that program faithfully every single year until they started going to full-blown summer camps. Um, and it was kind of the almost the background music for the whole summer because there were so many events at water parks, at uh, regular parks. There were uh, the, the reptile man would come with the big, huge snakes and, and uh, reptiles, and he would be in the library with these huge snakes. Like, <laughs> and I'd be so grossed out. I'd be at the back corner of the room, but my kids would all be up there holding the snake, rubbing mm-hmm. the snake, talking to the snake. And I, and I was like, this is a part of summer reading program. And, you know, me and a couple other moms are cowering in the back because there's a huge snake in the room and the rest of the kids are up at the front screaming and laughing and having a good time. And they really connected all of that fun with reading. And so they have mm-hmm. no, they've had no problem reading content and, you know, picking up books for, to read for fun. And that, that started with that summer reading program, which I, I loved it so much, not because it, the reading was excellent, but there was so much more to it. There was so much community, seeing the same families at different things, seeing the same moms, realizing that a few of the moms were in our uh, elementary school building. Um, so their kids were there too. So it was just... I, I can't stress enough how, um, how how that can be a real help to parents if your child is not really a naturally motivated reader. The summer reading program can be a huge part of that. Um, and it's usually at the library, your public library is running that program and you don't have to pay for it. It's free. Um, so I, I, as we're closing out here, I just I think it's so important because you have a, a very unique uh, situation that you're in, Angie, being the principal of a school that's public but uses the Montessori model, what can parents do if they want to? Maybe they're thinking their kid's school district should convert to that type of a model as well. What would their first step be into, uh, you know, researching or looking more into what the Montessori model of education is for children? Oh, there's so many avenues that parents can take. Montessori is a huge program that began many, many years ago overseas and has graduated here in the United States. Um, you know, my first suggestion would be definitely to get online and, and just do some research, watch some videos on what Montessori is, figure out what the foundation and the philosophy behind Montessori. And then as they're continuing, there there's several different apps on your iPads and then on your computers that you can use to teach you how to do Montessori at home, which is what we always tell parents to start with first because you need to figure out what type of learner your student is and if this type of program is what works best for your children. And so there's different at-home Montessori jobs that you can create as you're trying to determine if it would work. And then as you're looking forward and you're wanting to possibly introduce this to your your county or your parish, wherever you live, you know, to reach out to your educators. You know, Montessori is a huge program, and most of our educators are very well-versed in it. Most of our universities offer classes on the Montessori scope and sequence. And so starting there and seeing how 
It could be intermingled in what the students are doing currently in their classroom. Montessori is a very large curriculum, but it also is a very costly in regards to the materials. So it definitely has to be one that the school is highly invested in um, to get started. But the at-home Montessori projects that can start is definitely the the way to go to begin that process. But you know the the websites that you know that students and parents can use definitely is just type in the word Montessori, and you will have a list of things that you can view, read about, or even you know purchase books for the Montessori program. But definitely reach out. I wouldn't be surprised if if you start looking that there were some Montessori schools within the counties or parishes that. The, that parents live in right now, and taking a visit and going and looking at those schools because it is a worthy investment if you're needing that or wanting that for your children. That is so fantastic. I think that's uh, really inspiring for parents, especially as we look at education with fresh eyes coming out of the pandemic and and understanding what children need a little bit better after a year of uh, different kinds of educational options. Uh, Angie Franklin, principal at Mabel Brasher Montessori in Alexandria, Louisiana. Thank you so much for coming on today and for sharing your knowledge and and, uh, skills related to education. Uh, It's been very inspiring and I think very helpful for parents. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. So as we uh, are closing out our interview, I want to cover a story that is, um, it's related to education, but it also has a lot to do with this idea that we've got to be more uh, more involved, more connected with our kids' education. And that includes our young adults who are attending college. And this has to do with Rutgers University, their chancellor provost, uh, his, has apologized after speaking out against an increase in anti-Semitism. So they actually apologize for condemning anti-Semitism. Now, I know that if you look at Rutgers University, this is a well-known uh, private institution. It's a huge school. And when I say a huge school, I mean it has a name recognition. A lot of people who send their children there, part of the reason they want their children to attend is for familial legacy or for the name. So you have the chancellor and provost of a satellite campus of Rutgers University apologizing for an email they sent out. The email was condemning anti-Semitism in the U.S. because we've seen a dramatic rise in anti-Jewish hate crimes. So on Wednesday, Rutgers University New Brunswick Chancellor Christopher Malloy and Provost Francine Conway sent this email to the entire student body, and they said they just want to condemn the recent rise in anti-Semitism. And this is, uh, you know, because... And it's being highlighted in the news, obviously, because of the conflict between Israel and the terror organization Hamas. So then a few days later, they had to apologize. They sent a separate email entitled An Apology to sincerely apologize for their first email, which condemned anti-Semitism. They said the intent of the initial email was to affirm that Rutgers, New Brunswick is a place where all identities can feel validated and supported, but that the impact of the communication fell short of that intention And in hindsight, it was clear to them that the message failed to communicate support for their Palestinian community members. Malloy and Conway wrote that the university was enriched by the vibrant diversity and that it must be supported by equity, inclusion, anti-racism and condemnation of all forms of bigotry and hatred, including anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Now, here's where they went wrong. You can be anti-Semitic without being against Palestinians. And the fact that Palestinians think that anti-Semitism um, it, that being in favor of Israel means being against Palestine, quote unquote, um, 
that that's the problem. The problem is not with being against anti-Semitism. And this is where the parents have to be activated. You understand that your kid got an email like this. And even if this, we're talking about young adults here, of course, but that's still a child that you're, you know, that young adult, you're paying their tuition, right? You're still claiming them on your taxes, right? So you're still involved, which means you have every right to write the chancellor and say, I'm sorry, you can, you can explain the concept of not supporting anti-Semitism while valuing every member of the community, that equity and inclusion, which they included in their apology. Let's go back to that. Diversity must be supported by equity, inclusion, anti-racism. Right there, we're talking CRT. You have to recognize the buzzwords. Critical race theory, the hallmarks of it is that you hear the word equity, not equality. Equality means you go out and get your own results. Equity means we decide what your results are going to be by treating everyone the same, which means everyone will be treated inherently differently because human beings lack the ability to treat everyone identically. It's just simply the fact. So whenever you hear that, you know you need to start crafting an email. And my recommendation is that you go over to defendinged.org. If you go to defendinged.org, you'll find, first of all, they have deep dive featured content, and then they also have um, engage. You can learn how to help by clicking on that particular link. This is geared towards um, K through 12 education. But if you look at how to speak to your school board, that is also a primer on how to speak to any uh, school official, including provosts and chancellors at colleges and universities. So they, they, um, these two who did the, the email, they were trying, they're trying to, to navigate choppy waters as it relates to race because this is an ongoing conflict and speaking out against violence against one group does not automatically mean you're for violence against another group and these two well-educated individuals should be able to articulate that without making uh, it offensive or having to apologize so they say they hope to learn from the mistakes along the way and continue to make a beloved community at the university but The email also instructed students who have experienced anti-Semitism to reach out to the school support services and that the university is looking to work in close partnership with leaders of the Rutgers Jewish community to address student needs. Now, there is a Jewish advocacy organization at Rutgers. It's called Rutgers Hillel. And, of course, this this is a reflection of the fact that the main campus has 6,400 Jewish undergrad students. It's the largest Jewish undergrad population in the entire country. And um, this is, you know, this this is where they find themselves. It takes a lot of courage to speak out against uh, violence and anti-Semitism or violence against any group of people. But if you show that kind of courage, you have to be willing to follow through by also utilizing your good common sense. When there is a backlash, backlash doesn't automatically mean that you're wrong. If you took the initial step in good faith after doing your research and ensuring that you were making a statement that you actually understood and wanted to make, automatically backpedaling and apologizing is a sign of weakness in the face of opposition. And if there's one thing we can't tolerate right now in leadership of these universities, these organizations that our children are being educated in, in the church, We can't tolerate weakness because it allows the enemy to gain a foothold. And then that after that foothold, they begin to take over. It's clear that at Rutgers, 
This week, leadership has led to an emboldening of Palestinian interests who want to see uh, anti-Semitic attacks leveled against students there um, and, and across the country. And if you look at what's happening in New York, especially because they have the largest Jewish population in the country, New York City, um, New York State, that that is seeing the anti-Semitic attacks there and the reaction to them and the weakness in reaction to them is proof positive that we need to take a different tack. So I'm, I'm, I don't want anything to happen to Palestinians. I don't want anything to happen to Jewish people. But when the Jewish people are the ones who are the little old Jewish guys and the little Jewish women are being beaten down in the street, um, the, that the, the attacks are on the rise, that moms can't be out alone with their kids, this is a sign that evil is afoot. And the, the, the way to deal with it is not to back down after you've made your stand. So we we would, I would always say to any parent who has a child at Rutgers that you have to email, you have to reach out with a phone call, you have to make sure that you don't that you let the, your dismay and uh, lack of appreciation at their backpedaling and making an apology known. And this is the same at any college or university. I've called our kids' uh, university where they attend to ask questions about different issues. I always do it respectfully. Um, I always make sure and try to direct my comments to the office that is most appropriate for that. Um, and I, and it's not about being someone in the media or anything like that at the most basic level and really every day. Um, I'm my kid's mom before I do any of the things that I do outside of that. And so if I'm advocating on their behalf, I'm doing it as their parent uh, as they're the you know part of the the team, my husband and I, we pay the tuition for them to go there. I'm helping can, I'm can, helping them to continue to be raised in the the way, which means the discipleship and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So it's a responsibility that I have, and I'm doing it for that reason. Um, and, and so it's advocacy, certainly, but it's really to protect my kids. And the funniest thing is other people's children hope that somebody's parent will call or make an email. I actually overheard my daughter and her friend talking and she was like, well, you, can you get your mom to call? Because I don't want them to make us do this. And she said, well, you uh, on behalf of you, because I'm not graduating this year. It was an issue with graduation this year and for the, for the college students. And this is a friend of hers that's graduating this year and she's graduating next year. And she actually asked me, mom, can you call? And, you know, and I said, well, I don't have a kid who's graduating this year. The first thing they'll ask is, well, who is your student that's graduating this year? So our young adults want to see us set this example, and we have to do it. So let's not fall down on the job. Let's not leave them wanting an example to ensure that they have an opportunity to see advocacy in action on behalf of something that is meaningful and biblical. Um, remember, we are to support Israel. We are to... Um, Bless Israel. That is our mandate as Christians. So that's the podcast for today. I want to add in a couple of quick things here. First off, uh, don't forget that you can actually access a financial professional opportunity and an event because if you're interested in a career with meaning and purpose and you're looking for a new option there, you can become a thriving financial advisor, combining your values, drive, and skills to create a rewarding career, helping others reach their financial goals. At Thrivent, you'll have the support of a Fortune 500 company backed by a 100-year legacy. To explore what that means and to do work that matters, email david.sample at thrivent.com or visit thrivent.com careers to sign up. 
And um, one more thing. Don't forget about our advertisers in the Shared Health Alliance. It's the Alliance for Shared Health. You have an affordable health care option. You can um, get into this amazing opportunity and join 40,000 households who are participating. As a member, you share in the financial burden of health care expenses, including needs sharing for critical illness, accidents, dental and vision. And you can access the virtual care provider at zero cost. Pick up your prescription from the pharmacy using the share prescription card and order lab and imaging tests at discounts of up to 80%. Open enrollment is now. Don't miss out on the chance to save 50 to 70% on monthly premiums. Check it out. It's the Alliance for Shared Health. The banner ad is at stacyontheright.com and familyvisionmedia.org. You can start sharing and saving today. Alliance for Shared Health, changing healthcare and changing lives. So glad to be with you today here on the podcast. Check out more news and information from us at familyvisionmedia.org and my website, stacyontheright.com. God bless.